ears to good friends. Cheers. 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 Hmm. That's sort of an oaky afterbirth. What was that? She did tell me to uh, get a beer and some cheese fries over at Eskimo Joe's. That's very nice, lovely. I only hope you feel this way when I'm done. Because I could destroy this night in two seconds. Why is that funny? <laughs> well, I think it's a bit funny to be trying to define nothing. <laughs> Smooth as a bourbon on a summer day. Strong as a peated scotch in the winter night. This is a fair warning. The Catholic Man Show is about to begin. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. Welcome to the Catholic Command Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side, so raise your glass. Cheers. Cheers. Took us a little bit uh, to get the stream going. Juan is not here, so our producer's not oh, here. It's just one so of the things that happened, one of the problems today. One of the many, uh, yes, roadblocks of, of getting going today. But we are excited to have Pat Flynn in studio with us. Pat, I think I'm you've been be on here. our show like two, three times? We did an episode on natural law. Mm-hmm. We did something on fitness at one point as well. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you did uh, those... Videos for our patrons, which That's are right. really, really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My father-in-law liked those. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's swinging some kettlebells? I don't know. All right. But he told me he liked the videos, so. We'll tell him he did you. something. Yeah. He must have. I don't know if he, I don't know what he did. <laughs> uh, yeah, but those those are still available on, on Patreon for all of our patrons. If you are trying to figure out how to, I'm like trying to, there we go. Um, trying to figure out how to get a workout routine regiment going. And you don't know where to begin, and you uh, like minimalist aspect to get start one. That's right. We've you, got you, you covered. You, you built you built one out for us. I did. It was a great joy to do it. And then you also last night you were on. Uh, you gave a talk at the diocese with the Alcorn Institute for Catholic Culture and St. Michael Catholic Radio. We do one. Hopefully, try to do one every month. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, talking about philosophy, what it is, why it matters. It was a great, that was a, a fantastic talk, by the way. Yeah, it was a good challenge for me because I'm often sort of in the technical weeds of different obscure and relatively yeah. unimportant issues. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's kind of ironic because I run a channel called Philosophy for the People. So it really forced me to <laughs> take the step back. Yeah, let's let's get back to basics. And uh, yeah, and I had a lot of fun. It's yeah. hard, I imagine, because, you know, philosophy is distinctions, distinctions. And so you end up with a lot of jargon. Yes. You know, right. and how do you talk about philosophy and philosophical ideas without using that jargon, which is necessary, you know, in at a certain level, you mm-hmm. have to start doing that. That's right. So you can mm-hmm. distinguish. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, there's been so many times when I've tried to either replace the jargon myself and say, what's a different term I can use that's friendlier? And then I always run into that, that issue mm-hmm. saying, ah, I think I need to bring it back in at this point. So... I don't know. It's tough. You do the best you can. Yeah. Well, and, and my solution is just, hey, here's some weird term. Here's how I pronounce it. It's probably wrong. <laughs> and here's what it means, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, I was very excited. I, we got a lot of great feedback yesterday. Good after Good. after your talk. Great so, questions. Great audience too. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah, how yes. you know the talk was well received. Whenever mm. they they were wanting to pick your brain. In fact, we had to cut it off because it was like okay. We're running mob, out of time. The mob was descending. You had to right, and I was the one who was supposed to do that, and was like, I was all into it. <laughs> I and had Adam to... had to come up to be like, "Hey, we gotta cut." It's like, "Oh yeah," I was. Uh, I was uh, when anybody paying attention. What time it was? Because I was all into it too. So Pat Flynn, thank yes, you for sir. being here. Thank um, you for having me. You're a man of of many pursuits. I would say yes. Yes. Uh, Chronicles of Strength. You right. have the philosophy for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat Flynn show. The Pat mm-hmm. Flynn show. That's right. The there are other there are other Pat Flynns out there. Yeah, let's uh let's set the record straight here. Okay. There's yeah. there's the real Pat Flynn, and then there's two or three fake Pat Flynns. Which which uh, one are you? Um, haven't decided. Okay. In fact, <laughs> so there's so um there's there is this other Pat Flynn. He's actually a really nice guy, and I just did a podcast with him. He's the smart passive income Pat Flynn, right? Yes. And to be totally fair, he's definitely the most famous Pat Flynn on the internet. And he invited me on his podcast recently. It hasn't aired yet. It'll air in June. Uh, just to let people know that we're not actually the, the same, same person. Yeah, because I'm sure that I get it more than he does, but he's apparently got it enough that he felt he needed to set the record straight. <laughs> I mean, you don't look the same. No. Uh, but-, he, but here's the problem. So he's in the business world. Uh-huh. I'm mostly in the philosophy world and fitness world, but my one book is sort of in the business world. My, my green book, How to Be Better at Almost everything right so he constantly gets tagged when people are talking about that book and somebody was you know they were actually saying a lot of nice things about my book while tagging him on twitter uh-huh. and that's when he tagged me and we started kind of going back and forth a little bit and said we just need to do a podcast and let so him. what do you what do you do how do you i'm sure you've heard this before like being good at almost everything yeah what if someone says isn't that being bad at almost like at, at almost at, everything at, right yeah, at almost everything. Jack, jack of all trades so yeah, no, I say, so I promote this idea of being a generalist. Uh-huh. I, I like this idea of, of having range. and But I, I also don't like the idea of being a, a jack of all trades, master of none. I think you can be a master of many different things. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of effort. I don't think, uh, certainly not not myself, can be the best at many things. I don't, But I don't think I can be the best at any one thing either. I just, right. like, think like Michael Phelps, right? Like, there's no chance. Right I, right. I mean, to be the best at something, you have to have a lot of things going for you that are beyond your control. And then you have to work like crazy mm-hmm. very early on. Right. So I'm not too worried about being the best mm-hmm. at anything. But I think you can control. I mean, to me, mastery is about control. You can control a bunch of different disciplines. Maybe not a ton, but you can be masterful at many different disciplines. So I just don't buy the premise that if you're if you have range, that you're not going to be good at many different things. I, I just don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. Good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I also consider myself good at almost everything. Yeah. Almost everything. Really? I cannot draw. Yeah. That's it. Neither can I. That's um, the only thing or, I cannot do. Or, or cook. Um, but it, and to be fair, in my book, I say I try to encourage people to be good to great or at least fairly competent at mm-hmm. a range of different things and skills that are important that when you stack them, they tend to give you advantages in life that are more useful than being a hyper-specialist. So that's where my book was sort of aimed at entrepreneurs. Uh, I'm trying to teach them to be different rather than the best. Um, gotcha. But that gets me confused with the other Pat Flynn, unfortunately. Because yeah. he also is doing But that, he likes my stuff. thesis. He agrees with it. All so right. I have his endorsement. Yeah, so it's probably go. a good podcast. It was. It was, it was fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will, I'm going to listen to that one. Yeah. I think it will also be funny. 
like the two Pat Flynn's. I told a, a pretty embarrassing because I have some pretty embarrassing mix up stories. I'll I'll repeat one right now. Um, this is the worst one that I had. And look, my publisher for that book, it was very clear from the beginning. I told them make sure whatever you book me on, they know I'm not that Pat Flynn, right? So I just assumed if I was booked on something, this this issue wouldn't happen. Anyways, I'm on some radio program. I think it was in L.A. And it's going great. and But then we're like 20 or 30 minutes into it, and they start mentioning all these books and programs I didn't write. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, what do you do at that point? Right? You're on live yeah. radio. So it's right. like, hold on, guys. Hit pause. Right. I can't lie. Right. Zen, and I'm like, I'm not going to pretend to be right. someone I'm not. Yeah. Uh, this is a couple of years ago, so I forget how I handled it, right? But it was it it, it was sort of a train oh, wreck, man. but not completely a train wreck. Like right. I was able to like flag like, oh, there's another Pat Flynn. Let's get back onto talking about the stuff that I did, right? right. Type of thing. Um, so I think I handled it about as well as you could for something like that, which is to say, not great. <laughs> But um, yeah, the situation. Is well, what are you that. supposed to yeah. do though? Yeah, like, you know? what, do you, what do you do? I guess that's what I'm thinking because I'm hearing them. Like, it's not I, your I'm, fault, you know. Like, right? Yeah, they're, they're describing these books and the programs. I'm like, oh gosh, how am I going to handle this? Right? Because mm-hmm. um, that means the entire time they've been talking to me, they, they think thought, I'm somebody I'm not. Right. It's not a fun situation to right. be in. No. <laughs> you guys know I'm not that Pat Flynn, right? <laughs> I think so. I think well, I think I have it. I this is gonna be weird, but yeah. Okay, so, so anyway, thanks so for being here. Yeah, maybe we can start off by just like the kind of the the, the thesis of, of your talk from last night, sure. the premise of philosophy for the people, so to speak. Sure. What does that mean? That's a great question. So I um, have this theme that I try to promote. It's not my theme. It's actually something I borrow from Mortimer Adler, who I quoted last night, mm-hmm. uh, a couple days ago. Last night, a couple days. That makes no sense. I'm tired. Um, did, that, did, that, did the Jewish way, it would have been a couple days ago. That's smart. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you for helping me out. Um, no that philosophy is everybody's business. Now, why is that? Well, we're sort of stuck with it, right? And if we're stuck with it, we might as well work with it. And the idea there is we all have a worldview. We all have a world and life view. We all operate according to certain values. We all think that some things are important. Some things are fundamental. Some things deserve priority. Mm-hmm. We have political commitments, all of that, right? So that means we're, we're, we're already committed to a philosophy. We're already doing philosophy in some sense, all of us. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then it isn't a question of whether you're going to do philosophy or whether you're going to be a philosopher. It's just a question of whether you're going to do philosophy well or if you're going to be a good philosopher. Uh, So I try to encourage people to think about that. And I'm not saying everybody has to go and and get their PhD. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to be a philosopher is just to ask philosophical questions. There are certain questions that are just unique to philosophy that really can only be answered in the domain of philosophy. And we all ask these types of questions all the time. Uh, is it is it what's the difference between good and bad and right and wrong? Is it is it morally acceptable to want to have relations with lower animals? Well, maybe people don't ask that question a lot, but pe- I some hope people not. can. I hope can, they don't. I hope that's weird, right? that's we haven't don't need to ask that right. question. But there's there's there there are questions that are properly philosophical that we all ask, especially from a very young age. In fact, Adler has another good quote where he says, "Doing philosophy is just returning to all those questions that you asked as a kid before your dad told you to stop being so annoying." Right. And going back to them as an adult and realizing those are actually really good questions. Let's see if I can answer them mm-hmm. now. Right. What does a worm taste like? Right. <laughs> Why lions? <laughs> Why lions? I love that one. You have to tell that when you get back. All right. We're here with Pat Flynn. This is the Catholic Man Show. We're going to talk about philosophy, knowledge, yeah. and anything else that comes up. We'll be right back.
There's a common thread among thousands of formerly sinful people we now call saints. They had a relationship with God, which then inspired them to set the world on fire, as St. Catherine of Siena put it. But more importantly, and more specifically, it meant they put in the time. They sat with the Lord. They spoke with Him. They listened to Him daily. They unveiled their hearts and wounds and problems to Him. They offered Him thanks and gratitude. They left their sufferings with Him on the altar. They begged for His help. My question to you is, are you putting in the time? I know that I've sat in front of the church or sat in adoration making this mental grocery list of things that I want. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about time to build a consistent, honest relationship, time to speak, and time to listen. Dave and I have talked about on the show before that if you don't have an adoration hour once a week, are you really taking your faith life seriously? Are you really taking your prayer life seriously? But sometimes uh, you need a guide to help you in this holy hour. And so Exodus 90 has specifically put together a guide for you to help with your holy hour. In the show notes, you'll find a simple breakdown that shows you how to structure your time with the Lord. So this guide is also mobile friendly. If you go to exodus90.com slash TCMS, that's TCMS, the Catholic Man Show, exodus90.com slash TCMS, you can get a free mobile friendly guide on how to structure your holy hour. Highly recommended. Go check it out. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan and our special guest, Pat Flynn. We have Jim in the studio today. Thanks for being here, Jim. Pretty good, Jim. You're really letting the mustache grow out. I really like it. It's a very classy look. I just want you to know that. That I noticed, Jim. I want you to know that I noticed. And I like it. That's weird. Don't you think it looks good? He's like starting to get that hair, like the, not the, you know what I mean. It's, it's looking like old school. Sam Elliott style. Is that what it is? I didn't know what to... It looks good, Jim. Sam, yeah, Sam Elliott. I, but I'll, we can, I'll we can have to look on. up who that guy is, but anyway. Uh, Pat, yes. we were talking about philosophy, why it matters, and about uh, Mortimer Adler's, like, you know, all these questions you have when you're a kid. Because you are you are asking, is, there's a, a point in child's development where mm-hmm. they get to that why. Yeah, you begin wondering. Right, That's exactly. Philosophy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I was actually going to ask you that if you know, I know you're not like a child developmental specialist, but like, is do you know at what age, what like developmental stage of a child do does the philosophical faculty develop? I you know I I don't know the research on that. I just know the experience of having kids that right. it's surprisingly early. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's surprisingly early. Like two yeah. or th- by two right, or three, yeah. as soon, really as as soon as they have a somewhat command of language. Right. They can't even really speak very well. It yeah. seems like, and they're already, you know, asking why. Yeah. Why? why? What's this? Why? What's right. this? Why? <laughs> exactly. What's this? Why? Mm-hmm. Constantly. I don't know. <laughs> so tell the story about your son. I just think it's a hilarious story. Yeah, no, story. I mean, at one point, Roan, my son, uh, and he must have been very young, he just asked a profound question, like, why lions? And I, I think I remember giving him some sort of, like, I don't know, evolutionary account as best as I could. Um, and it just, like, seemed very obvious to him that, okay, that's an interesting, like, we would say, like, etiological explanation, right, of how one physical process unfolds to another one, which is... Mm what science is interested in but he was like asking the ontological moral question uh-huh. right what is the meaning of lions, lions. why are they here <laughs> what do they mean <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> why and like that's a much more profound question right that's that's something that's clearly beyond the domain of science right you might think that if you're 
an atheist, there's just no answer to that question. It's just uh-huh. sort of an accident that there are lions here. And right, the reason they're here is that because of you know selection pressures and stuff like that. There's no deep meaning to it. If you're a theist, you might think that there's that that all the the evolution account is true and then some. Right? There could be and there could be many reasons for it. Right? It expresses the glory of God in certain ways. Contributes to the ecosystem and stability of the universe. Right? It's a hard question to answer, but it's it's one that gets you. It's so simple it almost seems silly. But if you try to answer it, you realize that's it's not an easy question to answer, and it makes you think about. Really, sort of makes you think in you know metaphysics, makes mm-hmm. you think about ethics, meaning, all of that stuff from that one little childish question, right? I think it's because they're glorious. That's why. I think no, I, I I'm a big fan of the hierarchy of being, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that lions express a, a certain aspect of God's glory, no doubt. Yeah. I think once you hear a lion roar mm-hmm. in person for the first time, now you know why lions, yeah, right. like poet who have poetic knowledge oh I'm okay a, spoiler spoiler alerts but like yeah when you you've ever been to the zoo and heard the lions roar mm-hmm. it's incredible like yeah. oh what a sound dude look, watching lions nap is pretty interesting too because they look so sweet and cuddly you know it's like but, but don't rip your but face don't off do it yeah. don't do it mm-hmm. one time i thought that about a buffalo mm-hmm. and i got <laughs> close Buffalo are deceptively athletic. I'm just going to tell you that. This buffalo popped up and looked at me so fast. It was like, okay, bro. <laughs> All right. Walk back to the car. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> now now I know that. Yeah. At the time, I was, I didn't know that. Yeah. I used you know, to be my, really my dumb. Wife, there was a, <laughs> I used to be really dumb. My wife's one request for heaven is if, if there are animals there that you can snuggle with some of them that you cannot now. Bears, lions, especially. If there are animals in heaven, I would say that that is highly likely. Well, if you follow some philosophers, like, uh, have you guys read much from uh, Trent Doherty? He's no, got a I'm whole not. book on animal pain. So he's got a theodicy for animals and animal suffering. What is and theodicy? Theodicy is a story that you tell of why God would allow suffering and evil in, in the okay. world, right? Okay. Uh, usually bringing in the theological resources of your tradition, like Christianity. And Doherty's uh, account is very interesting because he believes that not only will animals be in the afterlife, they will be endowed with rational faculties in the afterlife. Mm. So think like Narnia. Yeah, very, yeah, very C.S. Lewis. Yes, yeah. right. That would be crazy. Yep. And it's 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 a really cool book and cool account. And he's he's Catholic and he's a great philosopher. So I, I actually commend that book for anybody who's interested specifically in the problem of evil. It's a really good book. Okay. But also ties in an aspect that's often think not discussed quite enough which is the problem of animal pain yeah mm-hmm. i have never pondered animal pain right mm-hmm. i will say i just heard jimmy aiken uh he was on catholic answers the other day and i don't typically listen to podcasts but this is one that made me say oh, i might actually go listen to that he was talking about how uh no not all philosophers not all theologians say that animals don't go to heaven Oh, yeah, it's I, not... Yeah. I thought that was, like, pretty well settled. You know, like, Aquinas, he fixed that, you know, like, right. yep, they don't have immortal souls. Right. They die, and, you know, like, they're just gone. That's right. Yeah, I, a lot of Thomists don't think that there will be animals in heaven, but that is by no means a settled position in Catholic theology. It's not like the Church has authoritatively said that. So I don't know. It could have been, like, his Mysterious World podcast. I'm not sure what it was. Mm. But, yeah, you know, I mean, so for Aquinas, you know, he he thinks that they <clears throat> they lack an ontological status that certainly prevents us from demonstrating that they persist after bodily death, which he thinks we can demonstrate for human beings. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that 
God's omnipotence cannot bring about animals sure. in the new kingdom, right? Yeah, Especially would, if you think in terms of a whole new creation. And this is where the counterpoint usually comes in. I'm not very well versed in this debate, so excuse my sloppiness in it. But the counterpoint is is that, yes, the beatific vision is the deepest intimate union with God we can uh, acquire. Mm-hmm. And it is true that if we think that we need animals in heaven to be happy, we, we don't have the right understanding of heaven, right? But at the same time, we're talking about a new creation, um, a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah. And there seems to be like there might be some strong biblical support for animals in heaven, <laughs> right? I've on always just level, kind yeah. of assumed that animals in heaven are like shadows or representative in some way of heavenly realities. Like maybe the choirs of angels, sure. mm-hmm. you know, it's, I don't know what it means to see an angel. They don't have a body. And so yeah. like, but I'm pretty sure when we get there, sort of intuitive I mean, vision, John, yeah. he's in, in the book of Revelation, he certainly sees the angels, right? So I, that we'll be able to see them. Yeah. But we go, what are they going to look like? Maybe they look like, like you know, maybe the seraphim, they look like lions, you know, or something awesome. Yeah. I, who knows? You know, um, I don't have a settled view on that. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm sort of open to the different accounts on animal. I just want to go. I just want to get there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's the I most mean, important thing, right? right? That's that's what matters. That if hev- it, heaven is our ultimate fulfillment, and we know what we need to get there. That's right. And I can I can trust that it will be my ultimate fulfillment. That I will have everything I need for that perfect contentment, the beatific vision, and what the details are. Hopefully, hopefully by God's grace, we'll find out when we get there. So I think I think this is a good uh, segue. I was hoping to talk about epistemology today. Ooh, is that a type of soup? What is that? Yeah, um, that is there is a a soup by the same name. Um, vegetarian I, I think so maybe uh, like Vietnamese yeah something I don't know but uh, t- <laughs> traditionally it's understood as the study of knowledge right I learned that yesterday at your talk um, so now I'm you know now, I'm now I know about all it about it let I'm me just yeah go on a podcast and talk uh, about it but you know God made the earth he made the world in such a way that it is knowable yes um, not all not all uh, religious beliefs adhere to that like the Islamic belief, I don't I don't know that they would necessarily agree with that, that the world or God's creation is knowable, that he holds himself to like a certain logical principle, unifying thing. But as Christians, we certainly believe yeah. that. Um, and I think that's important when we're thinking about our destiny in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, who are, who, you know, like the most fundamental question you can ask as a man is, what does it mean to be a man? Mm-hmm. What does it mean that I am? This way, you know. Um, so, t- tell us a little bit about epistemology, sure, and that branch of philosophy. So, as you said, epistemology is the study of knowledge, different theories of knowledge, and it asks questions like, "What is knowledge?" Right? Mm-hmm. Or, "How do we know when we have knowledge?" Or, "What conditions have to be in place for knowledge to be possible, or for knowledge to occur?" And there's many different theories in epistemology. Um, I have one that I'm attracted to, but I'm not an epistemologist. I'm mostly in in metaphysics, but that's the cool thing about philosophy. It's the cool and frustrating thing about philosophy. You start working in one area and you immediately have questions that that relate to other areas, right? So you just, you can't, you can't say isolated in philosophy, right? You do, you do ethics, you'll bump up to metaphysical questions, right? You do metaphysics, you bump up to epistemological questions. So this is getting back to the concept of range, right? Like to be a good philosopher, you have to have range, you do. So even though my specialty is in epistemology, I've spent relevant uh, and a good amount of time in the areas of epistemology that that I needed to spend time in 
for the metaphysical questions that I'm interested in, mm -hmm. like God's existence and stuff like that. And where it relates for me, uh, for questions of God existence, is I, I spend a lot of time on explanatory principles, right, and, and causality and stuff like that. And when it comes to the debates that, that I'm often engaged in, which are debates concerning the existence of God, one of the sort of interesting projects is trying to get the right sort of explanatory principle on the table, right? And theists uh, have sort of challenges with this, and atheists have sort of challenges with this. And the challenge fundamentally is you don't want your explanatory principle to run too far. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, for, for theists, you don't want to say that uh, your explanatory principle is that everything must have a cause, right? You don't want to say that. One, because that's definitely false. If you just think about the totality oh, right. of everything, mm -hmm. right, uh -huh. mm -hmm. then by definition, there can be nothing beyond it to act as cause, right? So not everything can have a cause, but if you said that, you would also have to say that God has a cause, right? So that's right. that's too wide of an explanatory principle. It's definitely false, um, but we'll connect the point to how this relates to knowledge when we get back after the music. Yeah. Okay. okay. We're here with Pat Flynn. Also, we're going on a pilgrimage. We are. Go to selectinternationaltours.com slash Catholic Man Show. We're going to go to Ireland, people. Come with us. Cathedral and distillery pilgrimage. It's going to be awesome. We'll be right back. Hey, I just want to take a second to thank you, the Catholic Man Show listener, for your support in Christ-centered capital. Christ-Centered Capital is a watchdog site uh, for Judeo-Christian investors. If you go to ChristCenteredCapital.com, you can use promo code TCMS2022 and get one month free uh, and have access to all of Mark Lozano's investments reports and help support his partner charities. Because we've had so much support in Christ-Centered Capital, Mark continues to grow. He continues to grow his business, and he's, he's, he's having new opportunities to help promote his, his business. So one of the things he's about to do is be featured on Capturing Christianity with Cameron Bertuzzi talking about Christian investing. So you're not going to want to miss that. Go to ChristCenteredCapital.com. You'll be able to stay up to date with what Mark is going on, and, and more importantly, be able to invest your money in a uh, ethical way. So go to ChristCenteredCapital.com, use promo code TCMS2022 for one month free, no obligation, subscription to his access to investment reports and support of his partner charities. ChristCenteredCapital.com, where do your values lie? Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show, here with Pat Flynn. Pat, I also wanted to thank you for the endorsement of our book. Oh, of course. I uh, appreciate it. I didn't even, I don't know if I even emailed you back, but I greatly appreciate that. You guys will have to come on my show to talk about it soon. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. That'll totally. be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, we have a book coming out, hopefully in, what do they say, August, September, September? August, September time period. I think like it goes on sale, pre-sales like in July, right? I think so. So... Anyway, uh, so we're here with Pat Flynn. We're talking about epistemology. We're talking about knowledge. Um, I think that's what we're talking yeah, about. And we're talking so. about explanatory principles, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which relates to <clears throat> arguments for the existence of God as follows. And then we'll, I'll show you how it sort of ties into epistemology. So, yeah, philosophers are generally interested in trying to figure out what, what sort of things stand in need of explanation. Um, how sort of wide should our commitments to explanatory principles be or how restricted. And the problem for theists is you don't want your explanatory principle to run past God, <laughs> right? Right. The problem for atheists is you don't want your explanatory principle to run to God, right? That's the way to, to think about it. Yeah. 
Uh, so the atheist needs to kind of like find a, an explanatory principle that is restricted enough that you don't need to essentially explain all natural things, right? Because as soon as you need to explain all natural things, it becomes a naturalism's dead, right? right? Yeah. Um, for theism, uh, you you don't want to say that everything needs a cause. I actually am okay with saying everything needs an explanation because not all causes, not all explanations are causal explanations, right? I actually think God is a self-explanatory being. Uh, so I think that, that God can explain everything else while explaining himself, yeah, right? I like that. Now, the mm -hmm. problem with, um, with the atheist is I think that unless you have an explanatory principle that runs to God, you're you're going to ruin epistemology. You're going to ruin your theories for knowledge. And this ties into something we talked about before, which is which are brute facts. Right? Mm, I hate brute facts. Tell us why you hate brute facts. I and think, then, and, then, and then we can <laughs> then we can tie it. In. <laughs> I think that if if you're if anybody if you ever reach that point in an argument where you say maybe it's just a brute fact that it just is that way. It's like okay, you've clearly lost. Mm -hmm. Like this this is a debate that you have you're essentially waving the white flag. Yeah. I've lost. I cannot come up with any reasons to mm -hmm. say why, like, to support my... So I'm just going to say, like, well, maybe it's just magic. Maybe maybe there's unicorns, like, pooping fairy dust everywhere, yeah. and it just is. Yeah. I don't know. So let's think about it like this. So a brute fact is where you get to something where it actually makes sense to ask why that something exists. That something cannot explain its own existence, and nothing else explains its existence, right? So it's something that would seem like it really needs an explanation, right? Say that you're, like, going down to the basement of reality, like, what's most fundamental, and there's just a turtle there. <laughs> and you just think, that's weird. That just seems like something that would need an explanation. It just seems like a turtle is not a good explanation ender, right? Uh -huh. It seems like that's just sort of a dependent entity like anything else. And then the atheist just says, well, it's a brute fact, right? It makes sense to ask why it's there. It doesn't explain its own existence. It's finite. It's limited. It seems like it's really contingent, right? Um, and there's nothing in principle that explains it. Now, this is important. A brute fact isn't a mysterious fact. The skeptic isn't saying that we don't know what the explanation is. They're saying there is no explanation mm -hmm. to this, right? And in metaphysics, I think this is important because I think any natural thing is, is, is no relevantly different than a turtle whether it's a physical field, whether it's a particle, right? It's always something that's sort of bounded, finite, contingent. It's always something that crucially stands in need of an explanation, right? So if you're going to kind of restrict your explanatory pr uh, principle, uh, your principle sort of doesn't range over all natural things, you are just putting brute facts on the table at that point, right? What, what, wherever it is, there's brute facts in there somewhere. And that's a, that's a problem for knowledge, as follows, because to have knowledge, we, we do, knowledge consists not just of true belief, right? It, it never makes sense that you have true knowledge. Knowledge includes truth, right? But it's true belief that's formed in the right sort of way. Hmm. It has to be it has to be true belief arrived at through a process that is somehow connected to the truth of the thing and is reliable. And there's different theories of this, right? Mm -hmm. But as soon as you say that that things can exist brutally, which is just saying that things can just like exist for no reason whatsoever, right? Well, now anything having a sort of adequate explanation um something having no explanation at all is is now competitive with that right because once you've admitted essentially that that brute facts are a possibility there's there's no there, now there's no way to differentiate what is and isn't a brute fact in principle right, right. yeah right and that's a problem because mm -hmm. it might just be that i th i think i'm talking to you guys right now and that i'm really kind of linked up with you know in the right way with reality but i actually just have this cognitive state that just popped in my head from absolutely nothing and it's just a brute fact 
that it seems like it's reliable, mm-hmm. but it's actually not, right? Well, goodbye epistemology. Goodbye. Sure. Like, there's no way you're going to get I mean, the conditions for goodbye knowledge. Goodbye reality. Goodbye sanity. I mean... Right. Uh, goodbye not, rationality. It's I mean, worse than knowledge. I think it undermines rationality yeah, I mean, itself, right? So if you think that that position is insane and self-defeating, which I think it is, then what you have to do is you need it. You have to strengthen your explanatory principle. You have to say, no, we actually need to be committed to an explanatory principle that we can know a priori that runs over all things that conceivably could have a cause, right? Anything that could conceivably have a cause must have a cause. And then we can ask, what sort of thing could not have a cause? What sort of, well, it's not a turtle. It's not a particle. Right. It's not a physical field. It would have to be something that like escapes all the usual categories of cause realities. What are those? Changing things, finite things, composite things, contingent things. So that means if we're going to secure knowledge, we need an explanatory principle that ranges over all this. And there's really only one entity that doesn't fall into those categories, and that's the god of classical theism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely ontologically simple, purely actual, immutable, eternal. So what I say is like, look, if you think explanations need to end somewhere, which I think they do, and there's only one sort of principled way to end explanation, which would be with something very much like god understood by classical theists, you're, going, you're not only going to need that, I think, for a good metaphysical project. I think you need it for epistemology because to avoid that, you're going to have to give up on principles of explanation that are themselves necessary to secure the conditions for knowledge, right. yeah. if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's how those two fields relate, but also how I think you make an argument for God from the existence of knowledge. If you think that you actually can know things, it links up with everything I just said to provide you reason, good reason to believe in God. Are there people who deny that you can know things. I mean, are there are there there are radical skeptics, yeah. Okay, that would be the rad, that would be the skepticism. So they would say that you just can't know anything. Yeah. So and the problem with that is like you clearly know the meaning of the terms you're using. Right. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, it's like does any that's just I'm and shocked. Are, and, and are you saying that you know we can't know anything? Right? Because that seems right. to be a claim to knowledge itself. Right. right. Yeah. So yeah, I I hold radical skepticism as as an incoherent, self defeating position. But there's they're out there. You wander into a few here and there. Do you think that people actually believe that, or do you think that? Th- I don't think so either. It makes me wonder. Like maybe you need counseling or something. Like you're not getting attention, like as a child, or like you know now you're. I think that's right. I think there's a number of philosoph- philosophers that um, they 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 probably should just seek therapy. Right. Yeah. Like, like you're trying to work out your problems as a philosopher. You actually need to like be psychoanalyzed. Right? Yeah. No like, offense. Do you, do you need a hug? I'll give you a hug. Yeah. You know, like if that'll help you, like it might be weird, but I'll do it for you, bro. Like, so if, where do you see help. where do you see people typically throwing out the brute fl- brute fact claims? Is it in causality? Is it the, the cause for motion? Like what? What, which one do they normally have to get pinned down to where they just say, well, is it tele- teleology? Like uh, where, yeah, where do they no, throw it's, um, brute, brute facts it's in, it's in your traditional cosmological arguments, and we were talking about this before. I think it's both the, the silliest and the strongest objection to arguments the brute against, fact against the existence uh-huh. of God, right? And I think what gives, at the end of the day, when we look at all the different arguments for God, right, the cosmological arguments, Aquinas' five ways, contemporary arguments, I think what gives the atheist the most trouble, which really deals death to atheism, are explanatory principles. I don't think that they can make sense of science, make sense of knowledge, make sense of all the things they want to make sense of without explanatory principles that run all the way to God, right? 
So for the atheist, it's really a choice, right? And I have, a, I have an article that was going to be in a volume. Unfortunately, the volume fell through, so now I'm just sitting on the article where I, I claim if the universe is intelligible, God exists, right? And that really is just an application of what's called the principle of sufficient reason, which is a explanatory principle that is strong enough to get you to God's existence. And, and through this article, I just run through everything that you would have to give up, including reason and knowledge itself, if you don't affirm a principle of at least this much strength, right? However, as soon as you do, then theism comes with it, right? So that's sort of the game. And I think that gives the atheist the most trouble uh, because they don't want to, they don't, they won't, they don't want to, and they cannot give those things up. So I think the most fruitful work for theists to do, sort of in philosophy of religion these days, is not even necessarily to like work on Aquinas's fourth way or fifth way, but continue strengthening these explanatory principles that then just really apply to all the different ways. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Now, what can mm -hmm. the atheists do at that point? Not, not a whole lot. They can just kind of like stomp their foot and just say, well, it's just a brute fact. Well, I've just showed you what all the costs, costs mm -hmm. are to that worldview. And at the end of the day, you can't compel somebody to believe. You can just say, this is, these are the consequences of taking that position. If you want to leave, live with that, go ahead. I don't think it's, I don't think it's livable. Yeah. Um, I think it's ironic that atheists often accuse Christians as living in like a make-believe land where, you know, you made up this God to like satisfy some you know, need, you know, of right. part is part of your nature. And so, you know, like you had to make up all this stuff, but really that's what they're doing. You know, like if they do get backed in this corner, what's well, a brute fact? Like they're the ones making up a fairyland yeah. that in order to like satisfy this intellectual position that they've entrenched themselves in. Um, I wanted to ask you about, well, I mean, it's so, it's so counterintuitive. And we were talking again yesterday that I don't think it's insignificant if you have two specialists, especially philosophical specialists, that disagree, and then you just bring in some non-specialist person with a good uh, BS sniffer, like you, mm -hmm. right? like you, David. You're great at this, right? Just call, <laughs> call Hold on, for time what it out. Is, yeah, right? yeah, right. Like that's that's clearly nonsense, and I don't care what your degree is, right? That what you're speaking here is nonsense. That's not it. That's not insignificant, right? Yeah. If someone wanted to pay me to do that, I that would be a great job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're here with Pat Flynn. Uh, we'll be right back talking about knowledge. Uh, I do also want to just talk about like why we want to come to know things. Yeah, but we haven't really, especially with God. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Adam Minahan, and this is David Niles from the Catholic Man Show. And we are so excited because we are going on pilgrimage to Ireland. We're going this September, September 15th through the 24th. We're going to go to some amazing Catholic places in the country. As you know, the Catholic tradition in Ireland is so deep and rich. And while we're there, we're also going to be visiting some distilleries, if you can even imagine that, you know. Us, the Catholic Man Show. So we're going on basically a <laughs> cathedral and distillery pilgrimage to Ireland. It's going to be awesome. And, and because we're going on a, a distillery tours that are not typical for the tourists, Dave, we're not taking a bunch of people. We're not taking 60 people. We're not taking 50 people. We're capping this off at 30 people because we want to be able to That's have it. We're, we want it to be intimate. We want it to be able to uh, go to places that normal tourists don't get a chance to go to. Uh, so... Go to selectinternationaltours.com slash catholicmanshow for more information. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles. Here with Adam Minahan and Pat Flynn. We're talking about knowledge. I think that's what we're talking about anyway. I'm not 
It's a brute fact. I'm not sure if I can know that. Brutely. I just want to like give a shout out to all champagne producers in the world. We do not mean to. We're not disparaging you. Brute champagne is is delicious. Mm. Extra brute is good. Honestly, I don't know the difference. Neither. Do I. I just drink the champagne. If someone buys it and opens it, it's like sure, I'll have some. But uh, Adam, you wanted to talk about something. I wanted to also talk about science. Okay. Well, let's, let's um, do that first. Let's do it all because yeah, let's do it all. I remember this is like one of the revelations. You know, sometimes you remember, like, I remember when that clicked for me. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that I remember, that science is a small subset of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And that there is, no si- there is no science, that philosophy, you know, the scientific method, which is developed by a Catholic priest mm-hmm. back in the day, um, it actually is good at doing one very specific thing, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And you need to use all kinds of philosophy to set up a hypothesis. You have to have used logic. You like reason, you develop this hypothesis, and the only thing that the scientific method can do is prove that hypothesis wrong. Let's say you have a hypothesis, like, oh, if I do blank, we should get results of, if I do X, we should get results of Y. And it works. And it works five times in a row. And then on the sixth time, it doesn't work. Okay, just because it worked, now all of a sudden you know, no, X does not yield Y. Because if it does, it should happen every time. And that's the way the scientific method works. Sometimes it works, but then if it doesn't, if there's one time where it fails, now we can say definitively, no, X doesn't yield Y. Maybe X is strongly associated with Y, right? But um, the scientific method can never prove anything correct. All it does is prove hypotheses hypotheses incorrect. Yeah, it can give us confidence, Uh right? Yeah, so it, it gives us credences, oftentimes... Uh, very strong credence and the the whole idea of hypothesis testing is is what does that right the more sort of accurate predictions a hypothesis makes the more sort of confidence builds in it say like the general theory of relativity which Mm -hmm. people tend to have very high confidence in but as you say there could always be something else that comes along that throws a wrench into it uh which has happened hundreds of times and Mm -hmm. fundamental things about the way we understand the world over history. Right. So there, I mean, there is a debate within philosophy of science, right, of like whether falsifiability has to be a criteria for a scientific theory or not, right? So, so a lot of people assume that it is, but this is actually something that's hotly contested because there's a lot of science that goes on, uh, especially in like uh, theoretical physics, for example, that wouldn't seem to be susceptible to falsifiability. What does that mean? What's falsifiability? Like you can prove, that it, you can wrong. prove it wrong. Okay. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, take like various theories of the multiverse and stuff like that. Doesn't and and that's one of the criticisms within scientific circles of theories like that. It seems like this doesn't seem like it could be anything that we could prove wrong. But then it's a philosophical question, right? That's right? not really science of that's... of whether you need to be able to prove some theory wrong for it to be to be counted as a scientific theory. Other people say, well, maybe we can just use inference to the best explanation and gain mm-hmm. credences that way. But the point that I think you're bringing up is that science presupposes a lot of philosophy, and including like, for its own definitions. That's right. philosophy that they're doing. Yeah. They're taking some scientific data mm-hmm. and then thinking hard about it mm-hmm. and coming to conclusions in their mind, which is, that's fine. It's philosophy, though. It's not science. Yeah. And this is related to scientism, which we talked about last night. And uh-huh. scientism is not science. It's a philosophy. It's actually an epistemology. So it ties into what we're talking about. It's actually right? a religion. It's, it's a, it, is. It, is, it is for many people. Uh, it is it is literally a theory of knowledge, right? And uh-huh. its theory of knowledge says that the only things we can know are things that science tells us we can know, right? And 
of course, is the, the sort of classic and I think absolutely correct critique of that, that that is a claim that science cannot tell us about, right? Therefore, by its own standard, we couldn't even know it, right? So it has this sort of self-defeat issue as well. But it's unfortunate because, you know, people load so much into names that on a mm-hmm. popular level, people think if you're critiquing scientism, you must be against science, right? And who mm-hmm. could who could be against science, right? So it's got to just kind of step carefully around that and make it clear I'm not critiquing science. I'm critiquing an epistemology, mm-hmm. critiquing a philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. I've just gotten to the point where, like, I just don't care what other people think about me. Right, yeah. I'm already married. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what other people think <laughs> You think I care about you? I mean, like, I care about your soul, but your opinions, I uh, mean, like, really mean very little to me. I hope that you have good ones, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But to your point, I mean, science presupposes a lot of philosophy. You pointed out logic, mathematics, mm-hmm. but even even morality, right? I mean, science presupposes that you shouldn't lie about your test results. Right, right? exactly. You shouldn't just make up data, uh-huh. right? Well, mm-hmm. It's not something science can commit us to, right? Uh-huh. It's not something science can verify, but that sort of seems to have to be a condition for science to take place, right? Yeah, and I think there's a, certainly a tradition of strong ethical guidelines, you know, that have been a part of the scientific community that may be starting to wane these days. You yeah. know, that there are just certain experiments you wouldn't do right. on a person, right? Or even like our guidelines with producing new medicine, you know, it goes through all these phase trials, then you start animal trials, but only after it's been shown that it, you know, you're not just going to like be slaughtering a bunch of even animals, right? Before you would try it on humans. So there's all this, these ethical things that have a strong tradition in science. Some people might just be uh, crudely utilitarian about it where they might say, well, if you just want good science, then you should act as if these moral facts are the case, right? But I I think most people want to say something stronger than that. They want to say, no, actually these moral facts are the case, Mm -hmm. right? And as it happens, they, they yield good science. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you just think about stem cell research, for instance, um, just I think this has just to do with the way God created the world. There's different types of stem cells. You know, how are they harvested or they, you know, through the uh, through procuring an abortion or from like uh, their stem cells in uh, the umbilical cord. Right. Um Adult stem cells, which are harvested in a completely ethical way, mm-hmm. are the ones that have yielded by far the most promising results. Mm-hmm. Fetal, fetal tissue stem cells have, as of yet, not really done very much. And in the future, that might change, right? They might have, like, because that's what they do the most research with. But yeah. mm-hmm. um, it's just funny that, like, I think God made the world a certain way. And when you deny that the world is, the way he made it, mm-hmm. then you end up with bad science. There, there are often very natural consequences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I want to, I want to like go back to this, like understanding this poetic knowledge uh, verse, like, um, I don't know. We live kind of like in a nominalistic type of world these days, it seems yeah. like. And so does that, do you think that that goes against poetic knowledge or does that like, yeah. What First of all, what is, what is Yeah, so the, this came up in our wonderful conversation last night. Um, Dr. Malash, Malash, am I yeah. pronouncing that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, posed a question of whether you can be a philosopher in today's sort of technological culture where there seems to be a hindrance or a great loss of poetic knowledge. Now, what is poetic knowledge? Well, it's, it's something that is often um, uh, contrasted with, say, just call it book knowledge to not use any further odd terminology, right? So take the example of a horse, right? You can open up a book on horses 
and you can learn all about horses from a book, their biology, their mm-hmm. character, physical characteristics, all that, right? And you could become an expert on that, right? You could mm-hmm. have all the sort of book knowledge on horses, right? But do you really know everything about a horse? What about the person who has almost no, none of that book knowledge on horses, but they grew up around horses, they raised horses, they trained horses, they rode horses their entire life? I think most of them want to say that, no, that person knows something about horses that the book expert does not. Mm-hmm. And they might even know something deeper about horses right. than the book expert does not. So call the latter poetic knowledge, whatever that the is. Experiential right? knowledge. In yeah. a sense, sure. Mm-hmm. For, like firsthand. Yeah. And um, so I guess the, the question last night, which we circled around but did not definitively answer, was how much does our um, culture of really mediated relationships and technology and stuff hinder poetic, poetic knowledge and how much does that hindrance affect um, philosophical development and stuff like that. I think it's an interesting question. It's just not one I've thought very long about, right? Yeah, and it's a, kind of an ironic question. Um, so it's not self-defeating, but I think it's self-answering. Like, mm-hmm. can one be a philosopher with in today's age of technologies? Like, the, the very fact that you're asking the question, like, makes you a philosopher, you know, it's... A little bit ironic in that way that, yep, we already know because we asked the question. That's philosophy. We're sitting here thinking about it. Next question. Yes, we're doing philosophy. We're doing philosophy yeah. on this very question itself. But I think he, he was posing that, that only some were really capable of of doing this well. Yeah. Is that? Is yeah, that his right? question was, it was more specific than... Right. Uh, yeah, so... He was, uh, from what I remember right, it was, it was a late evening and uh, did a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm. But he was coming from yeah. an Aristotelian perspective mm-hmm. and um, sort of thinking of the, the philosopher as, as, the, as somebody who has the life of leisure, right? Um, so can somebody be sort of Aristotle's philosopher in today's, in today's culture? I, I still want to say, yeah, they, they can. And maybe it's a little bit more difficult in some ways with all the tech, technological temptations and, and barriers, but I don't think it I don't think it excludes it. I mean, if it does, then I'm out, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I was born into this molded by it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like some of my earliest memories are me like just video games and the internet yeah. came online oh, early. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, I, I've, I've realized that, you know, technology is is harmful in many ways. Mm-hmm. but helpful in other ways as well. I don't think that it makes being a philosopher impossible. Certainly, I don't want to say that. I think that's that's too strong, even from the Aristotelian perspective. Uh, but is it is it worth considering, like, am I missing something? Is there a turn I haven't taken yet, right? This po- poetic turn, right, <laughs> that might help me along mm-hmm. in my uh, accrual of, of wisdom? Yeah, probably. Maybe I should go start a homestead or something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think technology is a temptation that can be a big distraction for us thinking about deep, important questions. But ultimately, you know, if we're virtuous and temperate in our use of all things, then we'll be well-formed to, you you know, use the faculties God gave us to think about him and his beautiful world. Pat, thank you so much. We're going to stick around for a few more minutes on the other side of the break. So uh, go to maybe sure to listen to the podcast. If you're hearing us on live radio or go to our YouTube channel, uh, this is the Catholic Man Show without a Minahan. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. You said. And David Niles. Yeah, you I'm also. Forget. I'm also. <laughs> you said this is I'm the, also on the Catholic Man Show. The, the Catholic Man Show without, without a Minahan. Minahan. <laughs>
Thanks, Adam, for being here today. <laughs> okay, so Pat, this is the backstage VIP access. Yeah, yeah, this is it. Um, that we give to everybody who wants it. Uh, so I was thinking about this question uh, because this is like after I got home last night. Doctor Malosh uh, was kind of he was at the other side of the table, so I couldn't hear everything that he said. Yeah, but. Kind of was I got gathered he was giving the impression that the philosophical life is the highest like life one can attain. For, yeah, certainly for Aristotle. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about that because, and maybe I'm making a distinction here mm-hmm. um, that is a false distinction. It seems to me that the virtuous life is the highest life. Mm-hmm. You know what? It seems that the virtuous man gives more glory glory to God than the philosophical man. Because yeah. a, a philosopher could be steeped in vice. Now, those vices are going to make him ultimately a, a poorer philosopher. Correct, yeah. Um, but I also was picturing, like, the, the, the farmer, yeah. the rancher, who doesn't think about deep philosophical questions, but lives this deep, virtuous yeah. life. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I, the way I would think about it from an Aristotelian perspective is is the good life is somebody who possesses the best life is somebody who possesses the whole of the good, right? Now, from a faith perspective, that's going to mean getting to heaven. So we mm-hmm. there's always like a, a, a big asterisk now whenever we're talking about um, the good life, uh-huh. right? Um, because obviously Aristotle didn't think that. He didn't, he didn't think right. we could be friends with God. Uh, mm-hmm. That would have appalled him, that mm-hmm. notion, right? He believed in God. He argued for God. But he thought there was just such a distance between God and us that it would just almost be like offensive. Right? It's, a, it's amazing how much yeah. he got right. Being a pagan, not yeah. having divine revelation as a, a right. huge benefit. right? But for... he, yeah, but he did think that contemplation of God was one of the highest goods, right? So not that we could have a deep, intimate union or friendship with God. That's uh-huh. what Christianity gives us, but contemplation of God. Now, he doesn't see that in, as excluding the other virtues. For him, it would have it had to be sort of a, a package deal. But since our... Our intellectual powers are our highest and most dignified powers. Then, what is going to constitute our flourishing to the highest degree is going to be the fulfillment of those powers, right? Contemplating the highest truths and the deepest causes, which will mean a philosophical sort of life, right? Mm-hmm. Which for him is going to include making sure you're you're well formed in the other virtues. Because you're right, if you know if you're just sitting doing, but. It's also important to realize that to be a philosopher for for the ancients is very different than how we think of philosophy today. We think of philosophy today as an academic discipline. For them, it was a it was a way of being. It was a mode of life. Mm. I mean, they were physical dudes. It was a very practical affair. Mm. Um, it wasn't just trying to turn out academic papers on obscure topics, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, for him, it the, the sort of highest fulfillment would certainly involve that that philosophical contemplation. Uh, but it would, I think, yeah, it would, it would also have to include the other virtues as well. So the virtuous would, virtuous life cultivates the philosophical life. Sure. Yeah. So the, the virtuous life would be more fundamental to, I mean, cause you know, we could think about it as like, well, who's more likely to be a saint, you know, is it the philosopher or, you know, the virtuous, but that's what I was wondering. Like, I don't think that that's a fair distinction to make. Yeah. And certainly if you're talking about contemplation, you're not going to be able to contemplate God if you're not virtuous. You yeah. know, maybe you could meditate on some things, mm-hmm. but meditation and contemplation are not the same at all. Yeah, yeah. If we, I mean, if we think of virtues as just as perfections of our powers, right? Then you're mm-hmm. not going to be a virtuous person if you're if if you haven't sort of perfected the range of the powers, right? If you so, if you're just a sinful. <laughs> 
you know, uh, academic, right? Yeah, no, you're not a you're not a virtuous person at all. But I think that would be an unfair reading of what Aristotle, I think, is is getting at, right? Mm-hmm. He's 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 seeing it as yeah, as, as a package deal, right? The, the the to be a virtuous person means you you have you have range, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that maybe what causes me to think about that is that I know a lot of philosophers who are atheists, you know, who like were bad people, yeah, uh, morally speaking, you right. know, I. I hope that they're in heaven, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, if I get there and they're not there, that wouldn't surprise me, right? You know, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the virtuous people, even if they didn't, even if they weren't Christian, you know, like it's, yeah, one wonders to what extent would Aristotle even consider Nietzsche a philosopher? Honestly, okay, mm-hmm. interesting. Right. Yeah, could be another way to, to think mm-hmm. about it. Because uh, I agree, I agree with all that, and that's why um, that's why I said last night in a talk, right? The only time philosophy is mentioned in the New Testament is in a negative light, right? You have the, the famous passage of beware of hollow and deceitful philosophy, uh-huh. right? Now, some people, I think, take that too far and it, think it's a warning against all philosophy. I, I don't think that's, I think that's right. I don't think that's right. It's a warning against sophistry, sure. to be sure, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's a mm-hmm. warning against philosophy that isn't sort of illumined and consistent with revelation and what God gave us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. You should be wary of that. That's that's bad stuff. That's not going to lead to a life of virtue. I think that's going to actually lead to a life of vice. But the only way to be wary of it... did for me. It did for me when I was younger, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh The only way to, like, really guard yourself about it is through the use of good philosophy. Yeah. Because if you just have no philosophy, then you'll be susceptible to those bad... You won't be able to identify them as bad philosophies. I I agree. That's why why I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted on, you know... A lot of times, you know, philosophers and professors will say, you have to read everybody, right? You're not a philosopher unless you've read everybody. No, I don't um, believe that at all. Uh, I don't I don't issue that sort of, uh, like, take take Nietzsche. I read Nietzsche when I was when I was young, and the problem with Nietzsche is he's, he's difficult to read. He's, he's polemical, he's rhetorical, he's not always exactly clear, but he's attractive to a young punk teenager. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the chops at the time to, like, discern the fallacies. Right. So I was just sort of sucked in by the dude, right? Now, I've come to admire him in a new light because I think Nietzsche is one of those atheists who's at least, like, f- fairly willing to ride out the conclusions of atheism to the absurd nihilistic abyss. So Nietzsche's become some, something of a frenemy to me now in, okay. in that sense. Um, but, like, it would have been better, I think, for me if I had just been well-formed first. You know what I mean? Sure. And then, and then once I was well formed, I could have engaged Nietzsche, you know. Um, and it, I think it, yeah, it still would have been a useful exercise, but better, I think. You know, I don't have the counterfactuals, right? Mm-hmm. Have the life we have, right? And mm-hmm. by God's grace, I made it to the Catholic Church anyway. So take all this with that, with that, uh, with a grain of salt, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, I just. I just can't help but think that it would have been better if I had been well-formed before I was sucked in by the old atheists and existentialists that really colored my worldview and led me to, you know, leading a life of great sin for many years. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I have, a, I have a dumb question, but do we ever stop growing in knowledge? Like, even in the afterlife, like, is there a point in time where we just stop? Like we have now hit the the max capacity of, of our knowledge, or that's I mean that's that's an open theological question. There are some in the tradition mm. who say that we continue to increase for all eternity as we bask in that that deep intimate union with God. There seem to be some that say that we're kind of filled up to whatever capacity we have once we get to heaven. Yeah, I can see 
good arguments for both of those. I, I, it's one. It's an unsettled thing. Like me. on the yeah. one hand, there is a delight in acquiring knowledge. Yeah. And so in heaven, if if there is no knowledge left to acquire, mm-hmm. then you seem to be deprived of that delight. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you don't possess all of the knowledge that that is there, you won't be satisfied. You know, you'll continue always in this perpetual state of unsatisfaction, mm-hmm. knowing that no, there's more knowledge that I don't have, right? So, yeah, that I mean, seems, it's, it's it's hard. It's, it's it's tough because when we're talking about heaven, especially the way the the way that I think about it, I I, I think that we need to emphasize theosis as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important um, because I think our flourishing. D- it, it, Maybe I'm just too influenced by Plato, but so were many Christians, right? Mm-hmm. That that I, I I do think that the beatific vision is a is sort of Platonic in a sense, right? Um, it involves a deep union with God, including an intellectual union. But we can't. I mean, we cannot grasp the divine essence. It's impossible for us, right? But if we can be pulled up into the life of God, uh, if we can if we can be made gods, that just completely changes things for us. But that's how do I think about that? I can't think about that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it's not something that we have even the slightest glimpse of. It's just a promise. So to me, like, that's an awesome promise because that means that we will see God face to face. And and seeing is is an analogical term. You brought it up with seeing angels. Like, clearly God doesn't have a body, incarnation aside. So whatever seeing God is, it's some sort of intuitive vision, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Some sort of deep intuitive vision where we're brought up into the life of God. Again, yeah, like what that intellectual is, have, knowing, it, you know, like, is. you know, I, you can know a friend mm-hmm. and it's not because you've seen them. It's because you know them. I think in heaven, it'll be something like that. Like right. I will, this angel, this intellectual being, you'll have like a knowledge of them. And that is and, like this and we'll, divine and we'll, light. And we'll see things as God sees them. We'll see God as God sees God, yeah. which is perfectly, presumably. It sounds pretty Which awesome. is crazy because that's not something that we have in this life at all. So. Right? This leads me to like a this is a great segue because I was going to ask you about you mentioned this just yesterday in your talk your prayer life yeah um, this is kind of a personal question but how has you know your study of philosophy since let's go like post your re, your conversion yeah right um, how has that has it deepened your prayer life has it made your prayer life more difficult uh, like yeah it's it's I mean it's deepened it I mean first off it brought me to Christianity and made me pray in the first place, right? Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember one of my early prayers was was literally like an agnostic type of prayer, you know, a God, if there is a God, save my soul. If there That's is a, a good soul. prayer. Right, yeah. It's, it's what I recommend to people. Like, yeah, if, if you're on the fence, exactly. pray like, it. one, it, it doesn't require you to be insincere or believe something you don't yet believe. Um, and it's just opening your will to mm-hmm. God's to God's grace, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think, it, I think that's a huge thing to consider, right? Um, so, yeah, my prayer life is uh, pretty basic. I'm a basics guy around the board. We pray a family rosary, mm-hmm. right, uh, every day. I think it's important to pray with your family. Definitely. Um, and, and for dad to, to, to lead mm-hmm. and be involved. Uh, my wife is, is great about uh, setting uh, prayer throughout the day, um, uh, especially Marian devotions throughout the day. She's mm-hmm. got, you know, we, we try to make it, we, you know, we're big into the domestic church, like like mm-hmm. you guys mm-hmm. talk about, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. making sure that, you know, always always grace before meals, certainly. But hey, 6 a.m., right? We do prayers. Noon, we do prayers. At the evening, we do, do the rosary. So for me, as somebody who's got sort of a philosopher's monkey brain, which you did, got monkey brain, right? 
it's actually the rope prayers are really helpful for me. So the two things that are really helpful for me are the rosary and the Jesus prayer. You got, you know, familiar mm-hmm. with the Jesus yeah, prayer, uh-huh. right? And it's just so meditative, the, the breathing, um, that, that helps me a lot personally. If I don't actually have that type of structured prayer, I find that it's much easier for my mind to start, to start wandering. Mm-hmm. Um, so nothing exciting, basics, but. Do you find that it seems like there's just so many overlaps between your prayer life and philosophy? Like, you know, on the one hand, you're thinking deeply, and the other one, like, prayer isn't exactly thinking deeply, but yeah. like feeling deeply. But there's a, just a lot of quotes um, about prayer that seem to apply to philosophy, you know, that like, you only you pray as well as you live, yeah. right? So, or Mother Angelica, one time someone called her and was like, hey, I'm, I'm distracted in prayer. And, you know, she basically, her advice was, if we live a life of constant distraction, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, oh, I have 10 seconds with nothing to do, like, I better check my phone. Yeah. Um, then it's no wonder that when we go to pray, we're going to continue to be distracted. Of course, yeah. It seems like those, are, those principles would apply to philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I'll say this. I'll say my philosophy has become prayer-infused. And indeed, um, my prayer has become philosophy-infused because it's helped, I think, give me better understandings of things of theological significance, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I said yesterday in the talk, like, I think that, um, you know, God is always always willing to give you more humility if you're <laughs> if you're open to it, right? Yes. And I think, like, God has just made me dumb sometimes, right? Just to make sure that I remember who's in charge, right? Uh-huh. That I'm not figuring this stuff out hmm, myself. And, like, there have been many instances where I'm just struggling with a, a philosophical problem in the weeds, and I'm quite OCD, so, like, I need to figure stuff out, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, I, no, I'm quite... I'm, positive god has like put those blocks in for me to remind me of what's most important which is return to prayer god i cannot mm-hmm. do this without you and time and time again when i do that suddenly illumination starts to happen and that's right that's that's right so now i've learned i'm, I'm a slow learner that, we like, all? before i, I do I philosophy i'm praying uh-huh. while i'm doing philosophy i'm praying god help me to see Help me to understand. Help me do it because I love you, right? And this is what you you were talking about, Adam, right? It's hard, if not impossible, to love something you do not know. So one other transformation for me is now I really, I really at this point see philosophy as sort of my spiritual part of my spiritual quest. Right? Sure, it's not just this separate academic thing for me anymore. It it is it is for me something that is deeply interconnected. Uh, to my Catholic faith, trying to better know God, so hopefully I can live a life of greater virtue and and better love God. So it is it is a spiritual quest and also a method of evangelization, too, because mm-hmm. I, I, we live in a skeptical culture, and I am very much concerned of making sure that Christianity and Catholicism has a rational seat at the table mm-hmm. to bring those down those barriers to entry. So, yeah, philosophy has helped my prayer life um, in terms of helping my theology, but my philosophy now is very much more prayer-infused than it mm-hmm. ever was before. It's very well. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everything is a gift, right? If we have a, a revelation, you know, or something clicks, that's just, it's, it's a gift from God, right? That he has, it's not like, oh, I earned that, you know, that's, right. you know, I pulled myself up, but obviously everything is a gift, right. so, you know, he's given it to us. I think about some of the f- great, you know, like, all right, St. Teresa of Avila, you know, it's not that she was um, necessarily, I mean, she was certainly well-educated, um, but some of her philosophy, she, you know, was very clear that this is just a, it was just, given to just me given, yeah. like in my ex, you know ecstasy in my prayer life 
the Lord just revealed these things I to mean, me. I mean, Aquinas is the same way. Everybody, right. They, they don't realize the the mystic aspect of Aquinas even in he, his prayer life. Yeah, he to me is like the perfect union because it does seem to happen often like, oh, you've got intellectual people and you've got spiritual people, right? You know, and some people, you know, are different personality types kind of lend us to like emphasizing one of those things over the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not exclusive. Mm-hmm. In but fact, the best Aquinas, are the that- he is like the epitome of this union of, he's a mystic and one of the best philosophers of all time. Let me uh, bring in another anecdote from Mortimer Adler. He's got, this might be in... Is he Catholic, by the way? It's so really fascinating. He converted to Catholicism in his 90s. No kidding. He lived super long, and he like... Well, that's good that he lived that long. He swam the Tiber uh, like the last, I don't know, three or five years of his life. Praise God. I mean, he was a Thomist much longer before that, right? Uh Because he's he's one of the the biggest modern advocates of Thomism. He grew up, I think, uh, in uh, as an agnostic, um, in an agnostic Jewish household, I think. Um, and then he was just, he considered himself a pagan for many years. That's why he wrote his, his book, How to Think About God, uh, from a pagan perspective, hmm. which is a very interesting book. He then became a uh, Protestant of some sort for many, many years. And then, yeah, became Catholic, like in hmm. his nineties. So really cool conversion story there. And, um, but anyway, so he gives, he gives an example where he was teaching Aquinas's five ways, uh, to a college course and whatever. And there was this kid who was just wasn't clicking for him and then mm-hmm. he was skeptical and this or that and Adler kept trying to try to get him to see no these these arguments are good they work right he said what eventually convinced the kid is the kid just learned uh how mu- how prolific Aquinas was and and how mystical he was and uh he said you didn't need to give me the five ways who had just told me that I would have been convinced of God's existence and God's help was all that right, right? you could have just told me like he's really smart you know like right. yeah, look at just everything like, he did just look at his volume uh-huh. right just like clearly this man has God's assistance writing right. three right. books at the same time like right. dictating them like one sentence at so a time. it was those facts that, that uh-huh. got him so I think that underscores your point right uh-huh. wow um I have one more question go ahead uh I want to ask like a practical question last night you gave um uh, a recommendation for a book, the Ten Things by Mortar. Ten philosophical ten, mistakes. Yeah. So you know, like as a for maybe a high school student, mm-hmm. you know, to get a good you know base. What about so you have young kids? I mean, our families are about the same age. Mm-hmm. Uh, my oldest daughter just turned seven this week. Um, are you doing anything like, uh, f- you know, like instruct? Yeah, like for formation. Mm-hmm. With the kids, yeah. what are you doing? Do you recommend any books or like different programs or what? It, what is? Yeah, it? I actually have my my uh, my oldest is already reading Adler's books. He's eight. I forced him to read How to Read a Book by Adler, which is a great book on on. It's really a book on logic, but it's also a book uh, to teach you how to read above your current level when it's just you and a text. How do I how do I struggle with something that's currently above me and pull myself up to a higher level of understanding without a tutor and stuff like that? So it's a it's a critical book I think for reading. And of course, he didn't understand the vast majority of it. And I said, "That's okay," because one of the pieces of advice in that book is that's what you do. You mm-hmm. just you, mm-hmm. and you keep reading, right? If something's above you, don't stop and try and figure it out. Get just get through the thing first, then go back and uh-huh. be more patient mm-hmm. with it, right? So that's an approach I'm taking with my kids: having them read above their level uh, and just absorb it, because that's that's how we work, right? You know, we don't get things the first pass. We just, but we need to be exposed to it. And my philosophy is. Let's start the exposure early, right? No, mm-hmm. don't make it impossible for them. Like two years before would not have been possible. But I knew like he's a good reader. 
And yeah, he's not going to get most of what's in this book, but there's no reason he can't start to, to work through this. So mm. that uh, is one thing that we do. What was, so what was it called again? The book? How to Read a Book. How to Read a Book. Okay. It's, it's phenomenal. Everybody should get that book. Even uh, for adults? I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, undoubtedly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I read that book on early on uh, when I was fairly young and uh, totally secular and atheistic at the time. And um, I read the book and loved it, got a ton out of it, but never paid attention to the author who is Adler. And then I rediscovered Adler many years later. <laughs> when it came to philosophy, religion, and metaphysics, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is the guy who wrote that same, uh-huh. that same book, yeah. Um, then we have, you know, classical curriculum. We're homeschooling, as you guys are, uh, okay. so, so that's big. Uh, we read the Baltimore Catechism to our kids, you know, mm-hmm. at dinner and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it's a blend of things between classical curriculum, throwing books that I know are above their level but are important for their formation, mm-hmm. and, you know, incentivizing it in, in various ways. You know, Fortunately, our children that are that are reading right now, they actually do love to read, Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they love to read the stuff I throw at them, but they don't mm-hmm. they don't protest at it either, especially if I say, look, you, you get this done. And I, I give them assignments, too. So when Roan was reading How to Read a Book, um, you know, I wrote up some questions. And uh, funny story, because he, fail, he failed his first one. I kind of knew he would. And, and you know, my, my parenting approach is like... Let it happen. Yeah. it's This is a good lesson here. But you don't crush them either, right? So if you if, sure. you, if you criticize them, like you do got to let them have some wins. And mm-hmm. there's, there's psycho, there's studies in psychology that say this, uh, uh, that like if you, there's like a right ratio, right? There's a right ratio of how much criticism to success. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to hit that ratio, right? But mm-hmm. you can't let them win everything, especially if they didn't. Like I was like, Rowan, you, you failed the test, right? Mm-hmm. And then he asked his mom for help and then she failed the test. <laughs> <laughs> and so of course, Rowan started ribbing her too. <laughs> <laughs> And well, so that I made them both retake the test and read the <laughs> chapter, and then they passed, and then they celebrated, and we played video games, right? right so then yeah. you get like the good reward, and it's uh-huh. like, oh, cool, all right, this was tedious, but but you actually I, feel I, like you I had it. I had yeah. a setback, I overcame that setback with mom. <laughs> we both uh-huh. overcame that setback, and Christine's brilliant. She just was trying to rush through it, and I didn't, I didn't let that happen. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, nope, this question's wrong. This question's wrong. And then we celebrated, you know, went over like, what did we learn from this? Right? Uh-huh. We don't, we don't rush because there was rushing. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem with children, as you know, they tend to want to rush assignments and mm-hmm. can't do that. Whether it's music or books, nope. Right. Yeah. Philosophy is best done slow, as mm-hmm. as we said yesterday. So can't rush because now, look, the point of the lesson I turned apart was like, you tried to rush this, and now it's going to take five times as long. Right. Where if you would have just taken a little bit more time at the beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. You would have got it right, mm-hmm. right? So trying to impart lessons like that, and then of course once it's it's done well, you you reiterate what the kind of deeper lessons were, and then you celebrate. Mm-hmm. Go play yeah. some Planario card or something. You know, like that, yeah. you know, just pondering your answer, it does make me think that, yeah, especially for children, if you're doing a classical education, which is really you know like what does that mean? It's just like you're exposing them to classical works, you know, the the great books. Which, by the way, at the in the back of how to read a book, because you know Adler is like the great books guy. Mm-hmm. Right. I did He's not one, know that. No. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah. Is it, at the back of how to read a book are all of his great books. And if you just went through that list, you know, everything. So from, he has a list of great books. Oh, yeah. So yeah, like John I'm, Senior. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, from, from from the Odyssey to Nietzsche and, and uh-huh. all of that. Right. Uh, he's, he's definitely like you just read all the great books and great ideas guy. But in the back of how to read a book is his list for that. So okay. Be a resource for people. All right. Because, yeah, like I think what you want to do is you want to kind of like that quote you gave of Adler, like philosophy is just all answering all those questions you had when you were a kid you want to maintain and develop that wonder right okay so reading uh fairy tales and like i've never thought about fairy tales creating a philosopher yeah 
But all of a sudden, at this moment, it makes total sense that, you know, teach a kid to wonder, develop, because that's a, that's a skill, just like other things. You know, mm-hmm. it's like logic, thinking critically, yeah. um, that pondering, you know, wondering about something, like, that makes a good philosopher, I would imagine. It does. Learning to, you know, you're not going to get good answers unless you first learn to ask good questions. Good questions. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Asking good questions is okay. A so how to read a good how to read a book? That's right. Um, any like any other recommendations like resource wise or if if you're like thinking like um, middle school high school children, I, I really can't recommend Adler's books enough. They're they're hmm. you know they're a bit they will be a bit challenging, but they are accessible. Okay. Um, so I would say how to read a book from Adler is really good. Ten philosophical mistakes, which will give you a nice sort of history of philosophical ideas and he's going to try and pinpoint where he thinks modern philosophy went off the rails and then he points back to where you can find the solution mostly to thinkers like aquinas and and aristotle and stuff like that so that's a that's a really good book he's got another one called the six great ideas he's got another one called aristotle for everybody that definitely would be a okay a high again i say high school but everybody would benefit from reading it sure um and then yeah those those would probably be enough from from adler Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. Pat, it's always uh, always great to have you on, on the show. Always happy to be here. Um, thank you so much for, for everything. Go check out uh, uh, your uh, your book. Where, where can they get your, your book? Uh, so the I have a couple, but the one that we mentioned on this show, mm-hmm. the green one, How to Be Better at Almost Everything, which does have a little bit of philosophy in it because philosophy is one of those skills that I think benefits everybody. Uh-huh. So I've got, I think I got a section in, in, in there on, on logic and stuff like that. Um, Amazon, okay. or wherever, where, you know, feed, where you get everything, feed the feed the beast, or the, yeah. yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, I don't know another website. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, right, Pat. Pat. Thank you, guys. Always yeah. a pleasure. Yep. Okay. Oh. So I looked up the last book you mentioned, and you can't get it on Kindle unless you get Kindle Unlimited, or you have to buy the book. My book or Adler's book? That, how to read a book. You can't get it on Kindle? That's, 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 that should not be right. That should not be right. I wonder what Adler would say about reading a book on Kindle anyway. He would not be a fan, because he thinks you need to mark books up. Big really? time. So Big time. I like was e-reading everything for a while, and then I realized what I was losing was when someone asked me, like oh where was that in the book i had yeah. no idea mm-hmm. and i realized if i had oh the books i've actually read i could go like that was about you know in the middle yeah you know you can mark and annotate things all you want to yeah but i without actually turning the pages and holding it there's a poetic knowledge the, yeah, yeah poetic knowledge like i re, i had a better i realized my like memory chronology chronologically was yeah. better having the physical book just right. actually watching myself turn pages and I'll do ebooks one if if the price